Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at Christian anthropology with Dr. Peter Casarella, professor of theology at Duke Divinity School. Dr. Casarella, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Dennis. It's a real privilege to be here. So let's start with, uh, can you give a basic definition of Christian anthropology and any other terms that it might go by? Sure. Uh, my favorite definition is one that I take from the Second Vatican Council, that is that it's only in the mystery of the incarnate word do we encounter the mystery of the human person, or do we shed light on the mystery of the human person? So, I mean, a lot of other terms could be used to describe it, but basically what we're talking about is the relationship between the the gift of divine illumination, illuminating human personhood in all of its dimensions. And what other terms might it go by? Um, well, the, the theology of the human person, um, per personalism, something like that. All right. And um, could you give us uh, some highlights throughout uh, historical theology from the fathers to medieval times? Reformation, modern, etc. I can try, uh, but <laughs> since it was one of the first things on the mind of St. Paul right after he was on the road to Damascus, the history is kind of long. But uh, when I look at the Church Fathers, I'm particularly drawn to St. Irenaeus, Gregory of Nyssa, even sometimes Origen. Then, of course, Augustine uh, plays a huge role in thinking about the relationship of sin and grace. That role is taken up by many monastic theologians in the Middle Ages, Bernard, uh, the Victorines, uh, particularly talking about the illumination of the human person in the light of divine love. Thomas Aquinas, after the introduction of Aristotelianism, plays a critical role in thinking about nature and grace. And then uh, many late medieval mystical writers, um, even women, uh, have a lot to say about the human person in the light of the cross of Christ. Uh, the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, many other strands of the Reformation, obviously make a huge contribution. Um, and then throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, many challenges are raised that have to be addressed. When I look at recent and contemporary theology, uh, there's great figures like Karl Barth, uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Karl Rahner. But I think today what I'm seeing is that it's more, it's less the idea of find, finding the maestros of Christian anthropology and more looking at groups and uh, networks that have begun, many of them interdisciplinary, that have begun to hammer out crucial questions that are contributing to even a systematic approach to the Christian view of a human person. So what, um, could you give an overview of what you think is crucial for the scope of biblical teaching regarding humanity, theological anthropology, that is? John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. Um, that's, that's a starting point. Um, but you also have biblical teachings about body, soul, and spirit. You have biblical teachings about the eternal destiny of the human person. You have biblical teachings about the struggle and the gift and the transformative uh, dimension of faith that we're given through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So 
And then you have biblical teachings about sin, inherited sin, and the act of sin, um, all in the light of the grace that is given us through the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and you also have biblical teachings like the encounter with the Samaritan women that make us think about difference and um, reaching out in a hospitable manner to those most in need. Uh, so the biblical testimony is very complex, but I think ultimately it's about uh, the gift of grace and an encounter of in the person of Christ with that gift. And uh, as far as your own personal thought, how would you define humanity and then further what is unique or at the core of your own understanding of Christian anthropology? That's a big question because I'm very influenced by a book called Catholicism written in the middle of the 20th century by Henri de Lubac. To make a long story short, he had, sounds almost self-evident, but he says you have to start with Adam. Adam defines the family of man. Um, and we all have, uh, and I'm not getting into debate about evolutionary theory and all that right here, but I mean, we all have that common parentage in Adam and Eve. So humanity uh I mean, all of humanity is invited to participate in the life of grace and the person of Christ. But we also have the beautiful gift of human fraternity in the person of Adam. So we we often need to be surprised by differences of people from other cultures that also represent part of that original gift that comes from Adam. So that's my definition of humanity. What was the other part of your question? So what is core or what is unique about your own particular understanding of Christian anthropology? Hopefully nothing. Hopefully I'm articulating what a whole tradition of people who came before me have already articulated more eloquently. So, I mean, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm not necessarily trying to say something that's um, never been said before. But with that caveat, uh, I'll just go back to the point I just made um, that you know, in rediscovering our humanity in all of its infinite dimensions, we're also rediscovering um, a path uh, to developing fraternity in the world today. Uh, and that's a real challenge. That really requires us to, to understand difference and to encounter those who are not like ourselves. That's a real ethical challenge. That's, that's where the systematic dimension and ethical dimension really come together. Okay, and we'll get more um, into those later. Um, regarding different views to the composition of the human, we have like dichotomous, trichotomous, people are considering different parts, body, brain, mind, soul, spirit. Um, there's materialist views, etc. How do you, um, how would you give an overview uh, of those different views? So, my... Uh well, you need both the body and the soul. Um, materialism looks at the body and a kind of spiritualism, or I would even say, if you can let me use this term, a new angelism looks too much to the spirit and to a disembodied soul. So how do you join the body and soul? Well, I'm not the first person to worry about this problem. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, I mean, you, we don't have to use the word hylomorphic, but I mean, had a distinct understanding of the unity of body and soul and worked it out with some care using his own Aristotelian terminology. 
But I think the the Thomistic understanding of the unity of body and soul understood against a more historical horizon, something like the philosophy of Maurice Blundell, where we see our common destiny being in in the human community and seeing an image of the Trinity in that human community. That would be where I'd want to go to address both materialism and this new angelism at the same time, looking to the unity of body and soul, but also against the historical timeline in which new creative ideas are evolving uh, into the future. And some people have distinguished between soul and spirit. Uh, is that, what is your take on that? The soul would be the substance of the human person understood in terms of its communion with God uh, as its final end. Um, spirit, <laughs> It's very interesting. I'm trying to write a book on this issue right now. Uh, we understand, as Christians, in light of divine revelation, we understand our finite spirit um, as something that's yearning for union with God, and that's only going to come about through the acceptance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But in modernity, particularly after Hegel, there's a lot of confusion about the relation between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit, and it gets kind of mucked up. Um, where you can't distinguish between the two, and we no longer see the finite spirit as something created by God, and we see it as kind of self-empowering and almost in a kind of pantheistic fashion as God itself. So you have to disentangle all those problems about the human spirit and go back to see a more analogical or looking at the unity and difference between human spirit and Holy Spirit. Anyway, I can go on about that, but hopefully that's enough to get us started. And then for those, uh, especially based on the brain science we've had over the last few decades who uh, see the human person in, you know, only materialist uh, ways, how would you address that? Well, Is there anything to their argument? Yeah, I've, I've taught large classes of undergraduates talking about um, new atheism we had one of them. We had a debate with a discussion with David Bentley Hart about his book, The Atheist Delusion. I think there's good, solid theological research looking into the problems and the fallacies with, say, Richard Dawkins or something like that. Um, but what I would add is that you, you I don't want to uh, create a kind of uh, parochial Christian setting where we're not looking at the newest brain research or we're not looking at the latest scientific uh, discoveries. There has to be an ongoing dialogue between people who are experts in religion and theology on the one hand and neurologists and other experts on brain science. But I'm also very influenced by uh, the young Joseph Ratzinger wrote in the late 70s a book on eschatology in which he talks about, yeah, we have to look at the scientific data, but that scientific data is also going to be illuminated by the final communion with God and interpersonal relationships that are then highlighted uh, by virtue of that final communion with God. Brain science can't actually put its finger on what makes us interpersonal beings in the both vertical and horizontal sense. So I don't want to have any walls between science and theology, but at the same time, I think there's things that the empirical investigations of science can't discover that are vital for understanding our personhood. So to understand humans, we need to understand those most like us, too, in comparison. So what 
Would you say that um, we're just a higher level, the most advanced level of animals, or there's something essentially different about us and animals? This is a difficult question, um, but one that has to be asked and answered. Uh, John Paul II, in one of his addresses on the problem of evolution, actually used the term ontological leap. There's some kind of ontological leap when you're going from the subhuman to the human. And I think that there's good reasons, both in terms of natural human reasoning, scientific reasoning, and also in terms of revelation, to take that seriously, the ontological leap. But the problem then develops, again, if you ignore science, if you try to create walls, if you do it in too insular fashion, um, like, where, where do you identify? You know, you have to look before you leap. You have to look at the scientific evidence before you leap. So... Maybe I want to say with Aristotle that what makes the human person distinctive is that the human person has language. Zdoan, echon, logon. Okay, but what about dolphin language? Um, you know, what about uh, you know, with chimpanzees and the way that they communicate? There's huge areas of research about semiotic relationships that are discovered uh, by animals and how they uh, inhabit them. Augustine even refers to that as natural science when he's talking about chickens in the De Doctrina Christiana. So, yes, there's an ontological leap. Um, we can work with that hypothesis, but we have to be open to new developments in science that question it or uh, require us to nuance it, differentiate it, etc. So, looking at life after death and the resurrection of the body forces us to make even more specific um, declarations or thoughts regarding the composition of the human. Uh, what are your views on that? Um, there's, you know, ideas about soul sleep, intermediate state, um, etc. How would you see that? Intermediate state doesn't have strong scriptural warrants, but the theologians who deny it and say that it can't possibly exist, um, have problems too. So, again, you get into a kind of dilemma if you go too far in one direction or if you go too far in the other direction. Um, I don't believe with Jungle that both body and soul are completely destroyed after death and have to be resurrected by Christ. Uh, that might work with certain forms of Lutheranism, but I don't think that fits with either what we know about the human person or even with revelation. I mean, the, the most adequate way I, I find for addressing this is not in terms of abstract categories, but look at like Catherine of Genoa, 15th century uh, Italian laywoman. She wrote um, a treatise on purgation, very influential. Newman actually picked up on it later. And she was thinking about not an abstract intermediate state, but how the love of God purifies the soul after death so that the soul can enter into union with the God of love. So she's thinking not about a place called purgatory, but she's thinking about the, the state or the act of purification of what's left of the disembodied soul as it enters into final union with God. Maybe that's a more poetic approach, but it seems to do better justice. The Dante's and the Catherine of Jonas join Genoa's and some of our systematic elaborations. 
So some of the physicalists and materialists, um, they're not just atheists, some theologians, Christian theologians have adopted those views, yet still believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, so that's, um, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I do, uh, absolutely. Um, I think uh, I found a, I, one of my articles, I cited uh, St. Bonaventure talking about in the light of the transfiguration of Christ, we have at least a symbol or image for thinking about the transfiguration of all things. So, I mean, you can go through the different Pauline passages talking about spirits and bodies, and that kind of detailed analysis is very essential to any comprehensive answer to your question. But if I'm going to speak in very general terms, I think that something like the metaphor of the transfiguration can help us understand how um, you know, our union with God, our final union with God, is ultimately about uh, transfigured flesh, and that we're called not as you know new angels or spirits to be with God, but in terms of some mysterious transfiguration of this gift of the body that we've been given. Now, people will come back immediately and say, you know, seventy percent of your body is water. You're constantly changing that. Maybe there's a couple strands of DNA in a woman's ovaries or here and there that perdure through the entire life of your body. So what genes, what cells are going to make it to that final transfiguration? No idea. But I think the configuration as a gift that we receive of the body, this materiality that God has created for us will in some fashion perdure and the identity of the person remain. Uh, in this new transfigured life that's made possible through the grace of God. I've already done a whole interview with Catherine McDowell dedicated exclusively to the image of God, but it's it's very relevant here. So if you could um, add some words about your understanding. Yeah, the, the most important thing I'd want to say about Imago Dei theology, because that's obviously somewhat isomorphic with Christian anthropology itself, um, and you can, you can obviously do the whole history of Christian anthropology in terms of the interpretation of being made in the image and likeness of God. But the most important thing I'd like to say is I see a renaissance in recent and contemporary theology about thinking of the not just bare traces, but the, the Trinitarian model for understanding the human person, where Trinity uh, and, and Trinitarian analogies, if you will, uh, embraces the whole unity, holistic unity of being a human person in history and action in diverse cultures. That's been a uh, very uh, deep inspiration for me, partly influenced by an Italian thinker named Piero Coda, um, who has also other various influences. But the, the project of a Trinitarian anthropology has been a vital resource for me in recent years. And that's, that's looking in a new way at Imago, with the fathers, with different mystical writers, but for modernity, a new way at the Imago Dei theology. And as we get a, a little more controversial, what can we learn from gender in regard to uh, Christian anthropology? How do we, how can we understand that? Well, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it's not an accident. Um, it's part of God's gift. So, yeah, obviously, there's a lot of polemics about it, and is it constructed or is it something artificial? And what, to what degree does society distort it and, or remove it? Or 
make it something different from what's originally created to be. The only, th- I mean, two things I want to say about that is that God created, with with some exceptions that have to be acknowledged, but for the most part, God created human beings as male and female, uh, and that should teach us about difference itself, uh, not just difference between men and women, but difference itself is part of God's creation. And then I like the phrase of John Paul II and his theology of body, that male and female are two different excarnations of the human being. From there, you can get into different theories about complementarity. But I think that's a good poetic phrase, excarnations, equal and mutually reciprocal excarnations of being a person. And then if we look at all the various um, cultures, ethnicities, how does that tie into your understanding of Christian anthropology? That it's a mystery, that um, we're going to find out new things every day as we we have a kind of somewhat global culture. You know, I can Zoom someone in Tanzania and we can have a great discussion about this point, but we're still discovering new things about people who are very different from ourselves. And that's part of the, the mystery of God. It's not just for missiologists or people who take long trips. Uh, it may be that you discover something new about the nature of the human person just by going downtown to your own city and getting to know the people there. But this this idea about cultural differences being part of God's plan, the great mosaic that he created, is very, very important to me. And as we look at, um, of course, there's still a big controversy, certainly in the Protestant church, especially between those, those who hold to creationism, uh, humanity is special creation, but those who believe in theistic evolution. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and is it even relevant? I tend not to get too overdetermined by that distinction, special creation versus theistic evolution. I mean, in the Catholic world, Humani Generis already, you know, 170 or 70 years ago, uh, began to, or 170 years ago, sorry, uh, began to, no, what am I saying, 70 years ago, began to address that issue, that from God, we see that there is a beginning. Um, but science has to illuminate us. Science has to enable us to see, you know, progress. Teilhard de Chardin tried to square that circle, and some people turned to his writings and his research to understand that. I mean, in terms of our salvation, uh, the beginning uh, starts in Adam and Eve, and that was created by God. That is a certainty that we have. In terms of the mechanisms uh, that allowed that to develop, even to evolve, I'm open-minded and want to learn more. And uh, speaking of salvation, uh, we have, I mean, that's just the core of the human experience, our sin, our need for redemption, and then ongoing sanctification, how does that tie into Christian anthropology? I'm still pretty neo-Augustinian in all of that, um, although Augustine was really trying to go back to Pauline categories that, you know, as you find in Romans 5, uh, sin comes into the world on account of one man or through one man. Uh, we can get into the Greek and all that stuff there, but um, so sin is not just a sin I commit. It is something inherited. Um, and without, you know, the gift of grace, 
in Christ, um, we're not going to be able to overcome that. We don't we don't save ourselves. We don't get ourselves out of that mess on our own. Um, and and that's where the community, the Trinitarian or the communitarian understanding of being a human person is rather essential. That's your opening up from within theological anthropology to ecclesial existence and being able to be uh, look at your own final destiny in a corporate and not just individualistic horizon. So the other thing about Romans 5 that is critical to answer this question is that Paul says that the gift of grace is not just equivalent to the universality of sin, but it's even greater, which is kind of amazing when you think about it, that there can be something so ubiquitous and overwhelming and deformative as sin, but that the grace of Christ is even greater than that. Well, to go further on that, um, whether they're Eastern Orthodox and you're talking about theosis or Catholic and deification or Protestant and sanctification, which isn't necessarily the same, but um, taking it one step further, what are your thoughts? Well, this goes back to what I said earlier about transfiguration as a kind of model for theological anthropology. Um, The West has certainly gotten too obsessed with uh, models of Christ as a kind of medicine that heals the sick human person, although that's fundamentally sound understanding of grace. So the Eastern Christian model uh, ha- of, of theosis or deification, I mean, has to be explored in all of its complexity and also in its ecclesial and sacramental dimensions, but to speak about it just on those terms, um, first of all, it addresses uh, a question of human desire. My heart does not rest till it rests in thee, O Lord. I mean, Gregory of Nyssa says that there's progress, even in heaven, a pectasis, that we are striving, even after death, to get into a closer union with God. So mm. that it's it's not there's nothing Pelagian about the you know Anissa or Gregory of Nancyansis or even a Palamas on the question of theosis or deification. We are attracted to and joined to the love of God that has been beckoning us, beckoning us even from our initial creation by God, but now has been reformed through the grace of Christ. So Unio Mystica has many different formulations, but the Eastern Christian go to take it more seriously is very healthy and necessary. All right. And throughout church history, there's been extremes of asceticism on the one hand and hedonism on the other. Very negative views of the body and overly positive views of the body, you might say. Uh, how are we to understand all that? Yeah, I think I like both extremes, <laughs> to, be, to be honest, <laughs> like a kind of monastic hedonism. I mean, you need you need a rule of faith, you need a, a discipline, you need an ascesis, uh to keep things in check. Uh, daily prayer, uh, liturgy of the hours, not to mention uh, communal and sacramental forms of ascesis. So I'm not pie-eyed about the you know desires of the body. And desires of the flesh. I mean, St. Paul was quite realistic about all that. But at the same time, uh, I think that, you know, the body has given us for as a source of joy. And 
you know, how could we have something like the Song of Songs in our common imagination as Christians unless our final union with God is something in some ways erotic? Um, so, and then you could look at Jewish and Muslim commentaries on that and differences and have a great discussion about the fecundity of God and our final union as um, not a hedonistic union, but as a joyful celebration. Hmm. And uh, one issue that keeps coming up in Christian anthropology is determinism on the one hand and free will on the other. Uh, what's the best way to approach that? There's a lot that can be said. Um, positive versus negative views of freedom. We tend to be, in U.S. culture, have a very contractual, juridical view of freedom. What are you keeping me from doing? What am I allowed to do? Uh, the biblical view is not like that. Um, but that's there's a lot of things in our culture that are adjudicated in that manner, and that it's hard to get beyond that. So we'd have to do a thorough investigation of what we mean by freedom. But the model that works best for me, so leaving that aside, I mean, the model that works best for me for thinking about the problem of freedom is, again, a Christocentric one. Let not my will be done, but thy will be done. So mm -hmm. we have to go with Christ into the Garden of Gethsemane and think about how Christ gave his freedom over to God and that we have this gift of freedom and we're called to exercise it so that we can be in union with God um, in the end. But um, following Christ at a distance and going with him into the Garden of Gethsemane might be the best way we have to thinking about how to use that gift of freedom that we get from God. And uh, speaking of Jesus, uh, for some theologians on this topic, they will see Adam as normative for humanity and others will approach the issue as Jesus as normative for humanity. What is your take on that? Christ is the new Adam, as Paul tells us. So I don't have to choose between the, that option. And anything else you want to add to that? Um, it's, I, think it's, I think Paul got it exactly right, that uh, Christ is the new Adam, not because you know, he's, one man is imitating another man, because Adam represents all of humanity. Um, and until all of humanity is saved by Jesus Christ, we're going to be finding out new things every day about the meaning of that Christ-Adam parallelism. All right, and to get more into the ethical end of things, the, the definition of human life, the sacredness of human life, especially as it relates to issues like war, capital punishment, abortion, euthanasia, uh, what, how would you approach that? Well, those are a lot of different issues. So as a Catholic, I think there's a lot of casuistry that you have to get into. But let me see if I can give a kind of answer that touches some dimensions of everything that you asked. Um, and it goes back to the Imago Dei theology. I mean, if there's any warrants or grounds for thinking about the human person as an image of God, uh, that would mean that from the moment of conception, um, every person that has been created by God has not just some or a little bit or partial dignity, but absolute human dignity. So, I mean, John Noonan wrote an article called 1971, that an almost absolute value in history, in which he talked about how once 
the egg is fertilized, there's a big jump in probability between an unfertilized sperm and then a fertilized egg. There's, a, you know, the jump in probabilities that becoming a human life is huge. And so he had that kind of probabilistic argument about human life beginning at conception. Um, you'd have to look into the metaphysics and the theology of the human person more to get at what's really behind that. But I thought that was a good kind of natural law argument for dealing with that question, at least as that was being posed at that time. And it's obviously even more heated and relevant and topical in our day. So, but that doesn't just apply to the fetus in the womb of the mother. That applies to uh, undocumented people uh, who have absolute dignity and who have absolute right to share in our common worship together in the assembly of God. That applies to, you know, socioeconomic rights. That applies to all kinds of questions that we have to address today. So, but the absolute dignity of the human person, without getting into the question about whether it's rights and how to deal with modern rights, is a theological postulate that's incredibly important for dealing with these social, political, and ethical questions that surround us today. So, what would you say are the key issues that theologians are grappling with today regarding theological anthropology? So, what I find really so there's there's a billion of them. But what I find really fascinating is, and, and that brought me into conversation with theologians, um, Latin America and from different parts of the globe, is this connection between Trinity, human person, and diversity of cultures. Let me see if I can and briefly explain what I mean by that. So we're not just created by God, but we're created by God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Gospel of John, and many other passages speak about that communion as a communion of love. Um, you could talk about interpersonal sharing, perichoresis, uh, reciprocity. Many different terms are used in the theological tradition to talk about the, the boundlessness, the ineffability, and the beauty of divine love as shared between Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit. That's our final end. But if there's some glimpse or refraction or maybe even just shard of that in the Imago Dei, then all of humanity, even in its woundedness, is called to a greater unity. So the Italian laywoman Chiara Lubitsch um, says that, you know, just building on where two or three are gathered, that Jesus is in our midst and we have to build a new humanity out of our woundedness. Um, and that enables us First of all, to seek Christian unity, uh, to overcome polarizations even within our own denominations, and then to take on the additional challenges about thinking about Judaism, Islam, and the wider world. But for me, this is a very exciting terrain in which I've been discussing theological anthropology with with peers and colleagues and with students, um, a kind of Trinitarian uh, anthropology um, that looks at cultural diversity, difference, and some of the social questions we're facing today uh, earnestly, but also with a Christian vision. All right. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge with Dr. Peter Casarella, professor of theology at Duke Divinity School. Dr. Casarella, thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. All right. Peace to everyone.